0: come here my little friend don't be afraid you must learn the ways of oncology if you are to come with me to alderan i need your help listener he needs your help i'm getting too old for this sort of thing that was the late great alec guinness in his most famous role as obi-wan kenobi in the first Star Wars film, A New Hope, released in 1977. And, Josh, a, it is a very fitting intro to this, our first in a equally epic trilogy addressing prostate cancer.
1: It is a very fitting introduction indeed, Michael, and you always say it just so well. The other connection to Alec Guinness and... Star Wars and prostate cancer is, did you know that before Alec Guinness died, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer as well? I did not. So it's like three degrees of bacon, but three
0: degrees of Alec Guinness between Star Wars and an oncology podcast.
1: Exactly. And I mean, the reality is this is from Wikipedia, so who knows how true this is. But ultimately, I assume someone's not editing his profile page ...with that information.
0: Absolutely. Although, even though Alec Guinness famously hated his role on Star Wars... ...I'm sure that he would have loved to be on this podcast.
1: Yes, I'm sure he would have very much made this the most popular podcast in medical history. It lent
0: it a lot of gravitas. Anyway, (laughs) um, as mentioned, this is the first of a planned three-part episode... ...where we will take an epic odyssey through the world of prostate cancer... Much like breast cancer, there is a ton of evidence and a ton of information and therapeutic options that are available to patients. And so we thought it fitting to go, actually, Josh, where, where this podcast started, our very first episode dealt with this topic. But now that we actually know how to podcast somewhat, we're going to give it another crack.
1: I'm all about the second chances, Michael, and before we dive deep into this part one of our trilogy, let's talk a tiny bit about, I guess, our topic today, which is metastatic castrate-sensitive prostate cancer. You might remember we spoke a little bit about this in episode one, so I'm not going to harp too much on about the background, but I will give a couple of tidbits First of all, a shout out to Charles Huggins. For those that don't know and want another piece of trivia for their day, he was the man who established the critical role of androgens in stimulating prostate cancer growth. ADT, which is Androgen Deprivation Therapy alone, so in Australia we use an injection, in places like the States you can get a tablet, can normalize serum levels of prostate specific antigen in over 90% of patients and produce objective tumor response by 80 to 90 percent the duration of a single agent treatment varies dramatically but like all cancers and especially in prostate cancer most people eventually experience disease progression historically ADT was used as a monotherapy therefore the limitation of its effectiveness is variable but a couple of years to maybe longer depending on the individual biology On the background of several decades without substantial progress, the prostate cancer treatment paradigm has exploded, resulting in a complicated path with a progressively changing standard of care. Ten years ago, there was just ADT. Then with metastatic castrate sensitive prostate cancer, improvement was seen with ADT and chemotherapy, or a second-generation androgen receptor axis inhibitor. You might have heard of one of the following, abiraterone. Apalutamide, Enzalutamide, Darolutamide, Michaelutamide. No, I'm I'm kidding. There's no Michaelutamide. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be the uh, uh, androgen receptor inhibitor that Josh
0: invents in yes, ten to twenty I... years. And just like most things, he'll be ten to twenty years behind the curve.
1: That's it. They would have already cured it by the time I get there. But I'm glad you're still listening, Michael. Um, let's let's, let's summarize this because I think we need to move to the trials. But 2018. Radiotherapy to the primary tumour was shown to extend overall survival with low volume metastatic burden. And let's not forget forget the advent of PARP inhibitors, the role of immunotherapy that it might play in prostate cancer, and of course, triplet therapy. Before we get to our trials, how how do you choose? How do you get there? This is a difficult question. There are so many options available. Options include abiraterone plus ADT, enzalutamide, apalutamide plus ADT, docetaxel plus ADT, triplet therapy. But then let's mix it up a little bit more. ADT plus systemic therapy, then high volume, high risk disease, what do you do? And then low volume, high risk disease, what do you do? So as you can see, it's really complex, this specific space. And Michael and Josh, well, myself, the Josh, we'll be talking about two pivotal trials which will hopefully inform you about options you have. Michael will be talking about Arisons today, and I will be the Peacekeeper. Um, I'm, I'm pretty much the, the New Republic here. And I'll be talking about the Peace One trial.
0: You can tell that Josh is doing a partially GU fellowship at the moment. I've never seen him, you guys can see, but I, I've never seen him so passionate about a topic as he is today.
1: I really do love prostate cancer. It's just fascinating. And mostly because when we started our oncology training and even when we did our junior house officer rotations, like none of this stuff really existed. It's all new, it's all exciting. And there are trade offs, I admit to that. And that's something we would definitely discuss. But it is something that can turn prostate cancer into a chronic disease. And I'm gunning for that. That's my specialty. <laughs> Excellent.
0: Um, One thing I will add to Josh's very comprehensive and energetic spiel there is that part of the difficulty in comparing these myriad options for the treatment of prostate cancer is that there are no direct comparisons. We currently do not have anything beyond anecdotal clinical evidence that directly compares darolutamide to abiraterone, abiraterone to enzalutamide, because they're all compared against the standard of care, which as we'll find is in the hormone sensitive space, ADT with or without docetaxel. But let's talk about arisons And arisons is a really, really good trial. I really like it. In reading up for this episode, I was reading through the arisons
1: <laughs> Michael, 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 I gotta tell you Arisons really likes you too <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm so glad that my attraction towards Arisons is reciprocated <laughs> You should have Josh was just waving his hands Just willy, just hoping that I would stop talking So he could jump in with that joke Anyway, we've gone off topic Far more than we normally have But quite frankly, I'm having a lot of fun here So, Arisons is a study of darolutamide And the background to this is the standard treatment for hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, which I'll refer to as HSPC, is docetaxel plus ADT or ADT alone, depending on the risk stratification of the patient's original disease. We discussed the criteria that are frequently used for this in our premiere episode where we discussed the charted study. There is also emerging evidence of the addition of an androgen receptor antagonist in patients with high-risk disease, and this is seen in the Pivotal Enzymet trial, as well as the trial that Josh is going to untangle for us later in the episode, piece one. However, darolutamide, and in our previous discussions, Josh, I've admitted that darolutamide is the androgen receptor blocker that I have the least experience with, and I think you did mention that in your experience, it has a broad range of side effects, but patients tend to tolerate it potentially better than its competitors in enzalutamide and abiraterone.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting point, Michael, and I don't want to interrupt your flow, but I did go to a talk recently that did a a dirty comparison of toxicities of darolutamide versus enzalutamide and abiraterone, and yes, I I suspect the presenter might have had a sway towards one of the newer agents, darolutamide, but from what he was saying, it, it seemed to just have less people come off trial, less people come off the drug. And as I briefly mentioned at the start, you have to think about the toxicities because these guys, a little bit like breast cancer, are likely to be on these treatments for many, many years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And darolutamide is newer. And newer is always better, right, Josh? Younger is always better.
1: Um, when it works better, yes. When it doesn't, <laughs> yes. then, you know, it's, it's bad. <laughs> yes.
0: So the... the... Evidence that's already out there about darolutamide uh, was demonstrated in the ARAMIS trial, which was a study of non-metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. And you might be saying, but how can castration-resistant prostate cancer be non-metastatic? Not to get too deep down on a trial I'm not going to talk about, but this was on... Conventional imaging, and what we mean by conventional imaging, this will come up later, is CTs, nuclear medicine, bone scans, and MRIs. It does not include PSMA PETs, which for a broadly applicable study, I think is the best way to actually structure it because PSMA PETs are still not available in every centre. And so some centres... In more rural areas or that don't have the resources of the major quaternary centres Really do have to... I don't want to say make do because they're still very good scans But they are left with no other option, shall we say, than what we call conventional imaging The Aramis trial showed that darolutamide has potent anti-tumour efficacy With a 31% reduced risk of death and a 2-year prolongation in metastases-free survival Which for a cancer that is already, as Josh said, trending towards a more chronic disease, is fantastic. So, Arrisons was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in March of last year, 2022, and investigates darolutamide in the metastatic HSPC space. Like most of these prostate cancer studies, it was a fairly large study with 651 patients enrolled, and they were randomized one-to-one to receive either darolutamide or matching placebo. This was not given alone. Patients had to receive ADT and six cycles of docetaxel plus prednisolone. And an interesting tidbit, Josh, and this is something that I don't think I've ever seen in any other prostate uh, study, is they also allowed patients to undergo an orchidectomy instead of ADT, which I've never seen really in our clinical practice. But I've never seen it actually allowed for in a study.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think. We're... I mean,
0: it achieves the same thing.
1: It does. Um, I guess the the question, maybe not in this cohort of patients, is someone who's got metastatic prostate cancer potentially could have intermittent ADT. That's a different conversation. We're not doing that today. But doing a bilateral orchidectomy. I know patients who refuse ADT because things such as Erectile dysfunction, loss of energy are just, you know, paramount to their equivalent of being in jail. And so for that, places with low resources from a healthcare perspective, occasionally would opt for that because it means you don't need to have recurrent injections long term.
0: And I guess it is also important to note that these drugs are not cheap. I think I saw that Zolidex, it's like a couple of thousand dollars per injection in Australia. That cost goes to the government, obviously, but they're not cheap drugs. And so if you're working in a country that doesn't have as much medical resources, then an orchidectomy does make a lot of sense. Eligibility criteria, fairly usual stuff. The one thing to note here is that the assessment of metastatic prostate cancer was done on conventional imaging. That's that point that I made before coming back. And patients had to be eligible for ADT and docetaxel. So these are not patients who are going to be frail and crumbly the study coordinators and the paci- and the doctors who enrolled the patients had to be confident that they could tolerate docetaxel as well as ADT exclusion criteria were patients with node only disease patients who had ADT 12 weeks prior to randomization within 12 weeks prior to randomization previous treatment for prostate cancer so these patients were completely treatment naive in the systemic space or radiotherapy within two weeks of randomization. So, again, fairly fresh off the boat in terms of treatment for prostate cancer. Stratification factors were metastatic, state, metastatic stage. So, patients with M1B disease, which is bone-only metastases, or M1C, which is visceral metastases. Patients were also stratified as to whether their ALP, their alkaline phosphatase, was greater than or less than the upper limit of normal. ALP is obviously elevated in bony disease, and in some scores online, it is used as a risk factor for uh, more aggressive prostate cancer. The endpoints were overall survival, that was the primary endpoint, but there were a ton of secondary endpoints, time to castration resistance, time to pain progression, Symptomatic skeletal event-free survival, time to first symptomatic skeletal event, time to initiation of subsequent systemic therapy, time to worsening of disease-related physical symptoms, time to initiation of opioid treatment, and safety. And this is one of the things I like about Arisons, Josh, is that they're not just looking at the numbers. They're not just looking at the survival and the progression-free survival. They're looking at, and they're trying to quantify as best you can in a very rigid scientific study, the quality of life using objective measures, and it would be interesting to get your thoughts about this versus things like quality of life surveys, which of course are inherently subjective, and both will have their pros and cons. Some will say that getting a patient's perspective on their quality of life is all that matters, but I do like that they're trying to make such a subjective measure as objective as possible.
1: I think it's important thank thanks for asking the question Michael and it's a difficult one to answer because you're right we want objective measures because you can ask someone subjectively but how do you then change that into data make it meaningful data to provide better options for your patients my colleague is doing a bit of a trial at the moment looking at sleep patterns and i guess quality of life in the context of ADT or metastatic prostate cancer like we're talking about and a couple of my patients have come back and it's objective right it's yes no one to five that's how they've done it but we can't directly create a personalized questionnaire for everyone it's going to be a standardized questionnaire and I think the other thing to note is one of my patients like Josh this didn't take me 20 minutes it took me 10 minutes and I'm like well I'm sorry that I gave you a reference rate but you know it's good that we're trying to get some objective evidence because we're so hung up on these PFSs and these OSs. Listen to our previous episode uh, with Dr. Michael Krasovitsky. That's a that's the shout-out. It was quite interesting. We, we, we forget that these patients have to live with these side effects, so it's really important.
0: The other thing as well with the subjectiveness of quality of life scores is their applicability. Mm-mm. Because obviously one person will be able to tolerate pain, nausea, vomiting, but as you mentioned before, the second they have even the slightest issue with erectile dysfunction or fatigue, that can impact their quality of life significantly. And that's obviously anyone who's spoken to patients or even anyone who's spoken with people will know that that is not the same across the board. So I guess that's the other thing with uh, with quality of life surveys. They're very important, but they're very important much more on an individual level as opposed to a population
1: level. Yeah, you're 100% right. Everyone experiences everything differently in oncology, and so to make, make answers clear to us who are treating them is very difficult. Absolutely. Demographics,
0: we are trying not to harp on these as much as possible. However, I will make a note of a couple of things. Coming back to our last episode with Michael on geriatric oncology, again, listen to it. It was fantastic. But in terms of the age of enrollment with these patients, only 15% were aged between 75 and 84, and only 3% were aged greater than 85. And if you think about the prostate cancer patients that you see, I'd be willing to bet that a good proportion of those, certainly more than 18%, would be over the age of 75. Other notes with the demographic uh, population data is that the majority had a Gleason score in their primary of greater than or equal to 8, which is colloquially associated with more aggressive disease. The majority had an M1B disease, which again is only bone mets. And the majority had an ALP of greater than, than the upper limit of normal. And now the results. So these are very, very positive results. The hazard ratio for death was 0.68. So that is a 32% reduction in the risk of death, which is actually, interestingly, numerically similar or the same as the ARAMIS trial, which was in the castration resistance setting. What gives this number a little bit more spice is that this was, despite a high percentage of patients in the placebo group over three-quarters receiving subsequent life-prolonging systemic therapy, which was usually an alternative androgen receptor inhibitor, enzalutamide, or abiraterone. So in that case, because you're looking at these patients longitudinally, usually long after they've actually come off the darolutamide, you would expect that gap to shrink if they're getting similar treatments. But even after they've progressed through darolutamide and they're continuing on whatever other treatments they're having. Interestingly, a significant proportion of patients in the darolutamide group still receive other androgen receptor antagonists. The survival benefit is still there. And this leads me to one of the things that an old consultant of mine, Professor Ian Davis, who's head of up here in Australia, said that therapies in the castration sensitive space are usually more effective in the cast than the same therapy in the castration resistant space and we're seeing a bit of a visualization of that here secondary endpoints again darolutamide was significantly better in most if not all of these the time to castration resistance which again is a very interesting metric of treatment effectiveness because if you keep a patient's prostate cancer castration sensitive for longer theoretically obviously that will extend their overall survival that will extend their sensitivity to their current therapy and will reduce the rate of disease related events so the time to castration resistance the median time to castration resistance was not reached in the darolutamide arm versus 19.1 months in the placebo arm. Now, Josh, do you want to take a gander at what the hazard ratio was? It's one of the most impressive we've had on this on this show. Not the most, but one of.
1: 0.33 would be my guess. You
0: are so close. So close. Oh. 0.36.
1: Mm, annoying. <laughs> so, again,
0: it, it it's not quite... Oh, what was it? I think it was osimertinib compared to placebo, which was like 0.2 or something. But it's close. The time to pain progression, the hazard ratio, was 0.79. The symptomatic skeletal event-free survival was 0.61. And the time to initiation of subsequent therapy was 0.39. Again, the median was not reached in the darolutamide arm. So this is a very effective, very potent treatment, virtually by every objective measure that this study has set out. And it gets even better. So, in terms of safety, and remember, this is darolutamide being compared to placebo, being compared to literally nothing. And yet, the incidence of adverse events was similar across the two groups.
1: When you say it's compared to nothing, did they not get ADT as a backbone?
0: Oh yes, but they got ADT and docetaxel in both groups. Yeah. Okay. So you joke. would you <laughs> would yeah. so you would anticipate that there's going to be a constant level of side effects, and to be honest, in the placebo group, that's probably how you explain the rate of side effects is it's the ADT and the docetaxel as opposed to the placebo. But again, the only difference between the two is that one's getting daralidomide and one's getting placebo.
1: Okay. Just to clarify for everyone.
0: Just to clarify. Thank you, Josh. You are the great clarifier as well as the peacemaker. So. As an example, and I won't go into too much detail on this because I think I've singing Daryl praises
1: quite enough. I'm risking, yeah. I'm risking Michael, losing
0: my uh, my neutral
1: reputation. You probably will go into too much detail, but I love it. So go ahead.
0: <laughs> so the incidence of grade three. Side effects, as an example, was 38% in the darolutamide versus 35% in the placebo. And the incidence of grade 4 events was 28% in the darolutamide group versus 27% in the placebo group. Adverse events leading to discontinuation were 13% in the darolutamide group and 10% in the placebo group. So as Josh said, very well tolerated. And special events, these are things that I particularly look out for, such as deranged LFTs, because we know that's an issue with darolutamide's sister, enzalutamide, and hypertension were numerically higher, but there was never more than a 2% difference. So in summary, darolutamide extends overall survival, extends the time that the cancer is castration-resistant, extends the time to the initiation of subsequent therapy to a frankly ridiculous degree, and does not have a significant side effect profile when compared to placebo in combination with ADT and docetaxel. Josh, there's just one rub with darolutamide in Australia, and that's that you can't get it for this indication just yet.
1: Is there no access scheme available, Michael?
0: Um, Not that I'm aware of. There might be, but under the PBS... The only indication for darolutamide is M0 castration-resistant prostate cancer, as with the ARAMIS trial. So I will wait with bated breath for when darolutamide comes on in the hormone-sensitive space, and unless you can convince me with piece one it might be my go-to androgen receptor blocker.
1: That's a good point, Michael. I think, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, if you have a chat to your local darolutamide specialist um, from the company, you might be able to get it on an access program. Uh, we did put a people, a couple of people on it earlier in the year, but don't quote me on that. That's just something to sort of think about from an Australian context.
0: Oh, even better. More darolutamide for all of us.
1: Yes. Well, Mikey, you've put a pretty good fight up for darolutamide, and I want to talk about its competitor. One of the interesting things... About piece one that i'll now talk about the the complete title is abiraterone plus prednisolone added to adt therapy and docetaxel in de novo metastatic castrate sensitive prostate cancer piece one it was a multi-center open label randomized phase three study with a two by two factorial design it's a bit confusing And I think the caveat to this trial, before I get into all the details, is it all started in 2013 and they started to recruit. So the actual protocol development all predates this. And what's happened in between that time is RCs, or the second generation androgen receptor inhibitors, have come along and sort of changed the makeup of what's considered the standard of care. So standard of care in this particular trial is a little bit loose. The inclusion criteria, Mikey, as we go through, you know, 18, got to have a prostate. It's got to be adenocarcinoma. It can't be small cell, which is one of those very aggressive types. Good performance status. And like all of the trials, we still do. It's based on bone scan, CT scan, or MRI. They do not use a PSMA PET scan, which is far more sensitive. And the question you might be asking is, can you then correlate this based on a PSMA PET? You probably can't. Because we don't see a lot of that disease. So it makes it a little bit harder trying to rationalize some of this information with what a PSMA pet does. The two amendments I was talking about with the protocol so docetaxel use was a standard of care worldwide. This is after ADT and docetaxel showed improvement in overall survival in 2015. So that was two years after initial rec- recruitment started for this trial. So, therefore, you've got there was an amendment made at that point. In 2017, ADT plus abiraterone showed an improved overall survival compared to ADT alone. Therefore, abiraterone to ADT with docetaxel was allowed. ADT was continuous in this trial, so that's the injection I spoke about or tablet, and the orchidectomy was also allowed, Michael. Patients were assigned to docetaxel as part of the standard of care with continuous ADT. Docetaxel was given for six cycles. Mikey, do you think that's the the standard of care, six cycles of docetaxel?
0: In the hormone-sensitive space, yes. In the castration resistance space, we tend to use 10, or up to 10, we should say.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's, I guess, a clin- a clinician discretion, you could say. Abiraterone was 1,000 milligrams daily, and prednisolone was 5 milligrams a day. They were administered until disease progression, death, or toxicities, and the aim was for 10 years of follow-up. These are all the boring stats, but sometimes it's good to know. Over 1,100 people were enrolled, so it was quite a large trial, Michael. And the assignment groups were standard of care, standard of care plus radiotherapy, standard of care plus abiraterone, standard of care plus radiotherapy and abiraterone. If you're confused, that's okay. It is a pretty confusing trial. And so I will try and break this down so we can kind of make some sense of it so you can use it in your clinical practice. What were the primary endpoints? The co primary endpoint was radiographic progression free survival and overall survival. And the secondary endpoint was castration resistant prostate cancer free survival, which is the time from someone being sensitive to someone turning resistant. What that means for our junior listeners essentially, it means that with prostate cancer, your prostate cancer, as I said at the start, is going to be sensitive to dropping your testosterone. There is a point where the cancer becomes smart, creates its own in-house testosterone producing machine, and it kind of goes along its merry way. So if you can delay A to B, meaning time to go resistance, and as Michael said, improve the outcomes, that's exactly what they're looking for. They're also looking for serious genitourinary event-free survival, prostate cancer-specific survival, toxicities, PSA response rate, and the list goes on. I'm not going to focus on all of it because it is a lot, to really think about and i think if we speak to the main things that's what's important so for the radiographic progression free survival the median follow-up was about three and a half years up to about 4.4 years you are like, josh give me the juicy stuff all right let's head down to the juicy stuff um but before i do that let's talk a little bit about demographics i had you on a hook didn't, didn't i
0: anytime you mention the word juicy josh you've you've hooked me and everybody else who's listening
1: Wonderful. Um lots of Euro- fun European destinations. These were recruited at, including Belgium, France, Ireland, Italy, Romania, Romania. <laughs> <laughs> you you're going to edit that, Michael? I will I will eat you alive. No, I won't. Um, Spain and Switzerland. Most people were good performance status. And what we saw is time from diagnosis was about 2.3 months. Most people had bone Mets, which is probably the commonest location for prostate cancer. It's about 80% across the forearms. 8 to 9% had lymph nodes and visceral, predominantly probably going to be liver in this particular case, was 11%. Metastatic burden, Michael, very important thing for this trial. People who had considered high disease burden was 57%, and people with low disease burden was 43%. In, Michael, in terms of results, very, very interesting, and I think something that's really difficult to digest because of the two-by-two two trial design, but I'm going to try my best, and you can tell me every time I'm wrong. When you look at the overall survival, we'll break this down as standard of care with abiraterone and standard of care without abiraterone. The median difference was about a year, favouring the triplet therapy and the hazard ratio of 0.82. Then you've got the radiographic progression-free survival, which was 4.5 versus 2.2 years, favoring standard of care with abiraterone, and that again has a hazard ratio of 0.54. The secondary endpoints in the overall population, so when we say overall population, Michael, this is people that got just ADT, ADT plus docetaxel, ADT plus abiraterone, ADT plus docetaxel plus abiraterone, ADT plus taxa plus Aberone it's, plus a little bit everyone. of the moon. It's like, everyone, Josh. It's everyone, yeah. So, like, when I say the moon, I mean everyone. Um, so that's why it's really confusing. So secondary endpoints in the overall population, overall survival was not reached in the the standard of care with abiraterone group, and then the standard of care without abiraterone, abiraterone say that fast, was 4.4 years, um, and the hazard ratio of 0. 0.75 And the PFS for that particular cohort was 4.5 in the abiraterone versus 2 in the standard of care without. And again, a hazard ratio of 0.5. So no slouch. Not your trial, Michael, but no slouch.
0: No, absolutely. And I think one thing that we will probably talk about in more detail down the track is how they've divided up the study because you've mentioned that, you know, overall population which you took apart in great detail <laughs> that but that is a number of subdivided populations and in colloquial terms in common parlance we'll probably call it high risk mm. and low risk high volume and low volume so the way that they've done that can explain potentially why the hazard ratio is not as good as arison's when reading between the lines the Arrisons trial, because everyone got docetaxel, therefore everyone had to be high volume or high risk because you don't give docetaxel to people who are not high risk.
1: No, that's exactly it. But again, that only came out in 2015. So when we look at the primary outcomes, and then they've divided into ADT with docetaxel. So you can talk about this cohort of ADT plus docetaxel plus abiraterone or ADT plus docetaxel minus abiraterone and you can see the overall population so only 355 people in this cohort it was not reached in the triplet therapy and it was 4.4 in the standard of care therapy that hazard ratio was better at 0.75 and then if you look at the the radiographic progression free survival it was 4.5 versus 2 years and a hazard ratio of 0.5 so that was definitely no slouch for the triplet therapy if we move to the secondary endpoints so again I'm talking about the ADT and docetaxel population, and I'll refer to that purely as triplet versus doublet. My, my brain hurts. Um, so, over- You you and all of our listeners, Jeff. <laughs> Thanks, Mikey. Uh, the overall survival in patients with low-burden metastatic disease wasn't reached in either arm. So we can't really make an assumption on it, what's going to happen if you add abiraterone versus if you don't. So you can't really justify adding docetaxel. Again, docetaxel was only really... Given in the high high volume population, Michael, so it it probably wouldn't um, be included here anyway. Because I think if you have one or two lesions, like giving someone docetaxel in the castrate metastatic sensitive phase versus given, let's say, ADT plus darolutamide as a doublet, far less toxic.
0: Yeah, or um, ADT plus enzalutamide, which I'm pretty sure has a benefit as per the enzymet trial. But you you're right, you wouldn't give docetaxel to patients with one or two bone lesions and no visceral meds?
1: Um, Overall survival in patients with a high-volume disease, this is where it gets interesting. So triplet was 5.1 versus doublet 3.5 with a hazard ratio of 0.72. And then PFS in the low-volume disease, again, hazard ratio of 0.51. but And this was actually statistically significant. So it was not reached versus 2.7 and a p-value of 0.0061. But again, you don't have overall survival data for this, so you can't really justify it at this point in time. The high-burden cohort, a hazard ratio of 0.47. Michael, not your 0.36, but it's getting close to 0.47. If you look at that numerical and if you want to tell your patients, it's 4.1 years to a progression versus 1.6 years. So 3.2, that, that's nearly triple, triple, right? So that's at least 50% or 53% better.
0: Absolutely, no slouch.
1: Uh, No slouch. And then the other thing we spoke about was the castrate resistant free. So it hasn't switched from that sensitive to that resistant phase. That goes from 3.2 versus 1.4 years. So again, Michael, this is... I know I say Michael so often. Michael, pay attention. Um, I'm
0: sorry, I was zoning off.
1: (laughs) Thanks. Um, The hazard ratio is 0.38. So even better again. So this is getting quite close to the um darolutamide numbers and then prostate cancer specific survival was not reached versus 4.7 and a hazard ratio of 0.69 and i think it's really difficult because that's kind of the, the broad sweeping statements of each of the cohorts and then they've got forest block graphs which look at each of the four i guess paradigms that you've got which is standard of care plus abiraterone standard of care without abiraterone, and they probably break it down to you know ADT, ADT-docetaxel, ADT-docetaxel, abiraterone, ADT-docetaxel, no abiraterone. The moon. Cr- the moon. Right, the moon. So if you're looking at this chart and you're very confused, that's okay. But what you can see is that the abiraterone for the majority of the subgroup analysis, including – so PFS essentially benefits everyone – except for those that didn't get docetaxel. I mean, I don't even know why that's there. Uh, So the docetaxel, when, when it was not standard of care, abiraterone definitely benefited. When it says no because of physician decision, there was only about 90 patients that didn't benefit. I don't know why, but maybe it's just the cohort numbers. Maybe it's the population that didn't get it. Surgical castration in the PFS cohort didn't benefit. But again, two patients had that. Not really standard of care here in Australia or the States or a lot of places. And then, of course, if you look at the metastatic burden, it favours everyone in the PFS. And the overall survival is a less kind cohort um, because it shows while there is overall survival benefit, it's really in the high metastatic burden area, um, which is the, the interesting thing. So it's the high metastatic triplet or even doublet therapy, you'll see an overall survival. But I will jump across to toxicities. When you look at toxicities of the standard of care with abiraterone group, um, any adverse was 100, so everyone had some side effect. And then when you look at the ones without abiraterone, still had 100% side effects. Severe greater than 3 was 63 versus 52%. And this is in the with docetaxel population, not the without docetaxel population, Michael um fatal was two percent in the triplet therapy and one percent in the doublet therapy and if you have a look the most common one is hypertension so with the abiraterone check the blood pressure of your patients neutropenia 10 versus 9 percent. i'm gonna say that's all docetaxel because if you look at the non-docetaxel cohort there ain't no neutropenia um <laughs> you heard it there's
0: there ain't no neutropenia <laughs> Yeah, there, hepatotox- there ain't no mountain high enough, there ain't no valley low enough, and there ain't no neutropenia.
1: Yep, yeah, um, hepatotoxicity was 6%. Um, GGT, so liver dysfunction, was also there. I think, so it's a difficult study to really pontificate appropriately, but I think if I had to summarise it briefly, I would say this: high burden disease. You would give triplet therapy of the docetaxel, ADT, and abiraterone. You would consider not giving that if there was low-burden disease. You will consider not giving that if potentially they were very frail. That would be something to have a conversation. But that's generally when it comes to docetaxel as well. You need to know what the patient preference is because you don't want to end up killing them um, by giving them docetaxel.
0: I think that's a very good summary of, of, as you said, a very, very complex study, Josh, And it's sort of how the space is going. I seem to remember, and again, apologies if this is incorrect, but I seem to remember that the Enzimet study, the benefit was, again, most noted with patients with high-risk, high-volume disease, which makes sense if patients have low-volume disease at diagnosis. The thought is that their prognosis is already good enough that adding additional agents, we saw this with docetaxel, adding additional agents is going to add fractions of a percentage point or fractions of a, of a month to their outcomes. And so you're adding toxicity without significant benefit. So that's probably where we will end up in that patients with high-risk, high-volume disease in the hormone-sensitive space will be getting triplet therapy because the standard of care is already doublet it therapy. It's just a matter of which one. And until we get that mythological one-to-one comparison of abiraterone, enzalutamide, and darolutamide, which will probably only ever be retrospective, we're never going to know which one is best. And so it will come down to clinical judgment. As Josh mentioned, it'll come down to side effect profile and matching that with your patients.
1: I think that's it, Michael. And the other, I guess, limitation of this study is like direct comparisons between the different... Androgen receptor tablets hasn't been done. The whole idea of what you define as high volume disease in the guess the new era of different imaging, like I I don't know how you're going to input that into things like PSMA pets, uh, really because you know they they just find the presence of visceral metastases or at least sort of four bone lesions with one beyond the vertebral body. I think that was quite similar when it comes to the charted study. They use something very similar for that.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's pretty standard across Chartered, Stampede, Latitude, all of those ones is, is because the technology is still relatively new and relatively restricted. Conventional imaging is how all of these studies measure their disease.
1: That's exactly it. So I think, what, what, what can we say from this? Um, darolutamide is a wonderful drug.
0: <laughs> darolutamide is the best. Thank you and good night.
1: Um, No, it's a great drug. Although, again, in saying that, you know, uh, abiraterone is no slouch. And especially if you don't have access to abiraterone, uh, sorry, darolutamide, then abiraterone will definitely be a good option for triplet therapy. I guess the bigger question here is there is not a direct comparison. So this is a dirty trial looking at purely, you know, hazard ratios saying maybe, darolutamide has the better outcome but maybe you know with this cohort over 50 percent were high risk maybe they were significantly high risk and therefore they'll have worse outcomes as a general rule because there's always going to be that precipice where patients have huge burden of disease and while they will definitely benefit they might not benefit for as long or in the same regard to kind of that sweet spot when it comes to cancer
0: but that's an argument that you can have until the end of time josh and still not have a resolution uh, there's going to be people firmly on the abiraterone train because that's what they're most comfortable with. Same with Enza, same with darolutamide emergingly. I was going to say the same for apalutamide, but I haven't met a single person who uses that a lot. Anyway, um, there's not going to be a resolution to this, certainly not anytime soon. So it really does come down to what you have most experience with and what what is good for the patient. I guess the other thing to mention is, with abiraterone specifically, is that it needs to be co administered with steroids, with prednisolone or dexamethasone. And that should be a consideration as well. If you've got someone who has diabetes or ophthalmological problems or bone density issues, or anything that's going to be that's going to be worsened by long term steroid use, then that should be a consideration as well.
1: You heard it here first. That should be a consideration.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we're nothing if not definitive on this show. I think we should leave it there, Josh. So thank you so much for listening. It's been a very lively affair here on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Join us next time for Episode 2, or should we say Episode 5, where we will discuss the QAA and prevail trials of effectively the agents that you've heard us rabbit about for the past hour, but in the castration-resistant space. So we hope to see you then. And remember, the Force will be with you. Always. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts resources and links to our twitter and linkedin pages check it out at inquisitiveonk.com that's inquisitiveonk.com